Welcome to the Oxford Sidebar Podcast for February 2015 from the Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association. This month we hosted a science-themed comedy event featuring Fran Day, Alison Wooler, and Dean Burnett. We hope you enjoy. Thanks everyone for coming. Um, this is our inaugural uh, comedy event. We are the uh, Oxfordshire branch of the British Science Association, so thanks very much for coming out. I will try not to do that again. Um, so we've got three people uh, lined up tonight. Uh, the night will be compared by the lovely Fran Day, who's beside me. We've got um, Alison Woolard uh, coming up uh, later on as well, and uh, obviously the night uh, headlined by Dean Burnett. So clearly I'm not very funny, so I'm going to hand over to Fran Day. We are compared for the evening. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you. I'm just going to start and Stephen's sorting it out. Right, so I'm doing my PhD in theoretical physics here at Oxford. You can decide when you think theoretical physics counts as a real science after you've heard my bit. Um, but there's lots of really fantastic science going on here. And to be honest, it's making... Oops. Okay. <laughs> this isn't part of the app. <laughs> this, is, this is real. It's making me and my little equations feel a tad inadequate. For a start, one of my best friends is a psychologist and she's working on alleviating chronic pain in children. Alleviating chronic pain in children. I mean, for fuck's sake, that's like the ethical equivalent of developing life jackets for kittens. <laughs> Another friend is working on nuclear fusion research. So that's nuclear fusion and energy creation technique leading to clean energy. You know, leave all your lights on. I'm just going to put this down for now because it's more distracting than it is helpful. Leave all your lights on. Light your house using only the glow of 500 laptops. Hit your air conditioning against your heating in a battle for temperature dominance. It really doesn't matter. I mean, don't do any of those things because it doesn't work yet. It doesn't even sort of work yet, but you get the idea. And what do I do? I study particles called axioms. Um, they don't, you know, exist as such, but they might do. <laughs> I'd say they were less likely to exist than the knights of the round table, but more likely to exist than the knights who say me. <laughs> so these axiom particles, if they did exist, which they probably don't, but they might do, would be dipping through you as we speak, like tiny, ineffectual ghosts. So if they do exist, why haven't we discovered them yet? How hard can it possibly be? They are literally falling on our heads and up through our feet, for that matter. Well, the trouble with axioms is they don't fucking do anything. <laughs> they hardly ever interact with um, normal particles. The thing about working in particle physics today is that all the easy particles have been taken. <laughs> Gone are the days when any old bloke with a particle collider could discover a fundamental new constituent of matter. No. The particles yet to be discovered are the awkward ones. They're either so heavy we have to build 27 miles of collider to create them, 
or they simply don't interact with any of the contractions we've built and are increasingly frustrated attempts to discover them. So what have particle physicists been doing since the discovery of the Higgs? I mean, there was a certain amount of smugness and drinking, <laughs> and there, there's always a, let's build a fucking bigger machine. <laughs> there's that. There's a lot of that going on, actually. What theoretical particle physicists do is dream up ideas for new particles that almost certainly don't exist, and then imagine what it would be like if they did exist. I mean, I've had the Nobel Prize, for one, but what else would the universe look like? That is literally what we do. It's a bit like physics fan fiction. <laughs> what would it be like if Hermione had mass? <laughs> what would it be like if Gandalf would move in other dimensions? What would it be like if Gandalf had an invisible super-heavy twin? What would it be like... If Middle Earth were filled with tiny winged elves created just after the Big Bang, they did absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> so, how does this process work for axioms? If they don't do anything at all, we'll never be able to discover them. But fortunately, there's a very small chance that an axiom in a magnetic field will turn into a photon. So that's a particle of light that we can see. And th this chance is so small that we need a really long distance to make this happen, by which I don't mean a mile or ten miles, I mean like a billion billion miles. So this isn't helpful because I can't construct a billion billion mile particle collider, but fortunately space is huge and <laughs> space does my experiments for me. So I'm looking for photons from space that are signals of axioms. Sounds easy. It's not. And that's because astrophysics is really fucking complicated. It's really hard to know whether a particle came from an axion or whether it came from some boring thing like a star or a supernova or, you know, one of those normal things. I bet a lot of you love looking at the stars. They're really pretty. If you go inside a college, you can see them unadulterated. Not me. I hate the stars because they are messy balls of photons that get in the way of any new physics signals that might be out there. They ruin my life, and I spend all my time reading papers and papers about it. It would be much easier if we were alone in a deserted void. <laughs> so why do I have this kind of commitment to something with the same reality status as the Loch Ness Monster? Well, firstly, it's because that proving that axioms don't exist would also be a really big deal. It's actually quite hard to prove something, that something doesn't exist, and that's what a lot of theoretical physics is. It's dreaming up all these wonderful ideas for new particles, particles with wacky properties, particles that can move in other dimensions, and then destroying them. No wonder we have low self-esteem, really. Um, for example... If Hermione could move in other dimensions, why does she seem to spend all her time living in this one? If Gandalf had this super heavy twin, why don't we notice him bumping into us? Maybe we can use the fact that we don't notice him bumping into us to put limits on how big he is and how often he interacts with normal, everyday people. The name of the game in particle physics today really is proving what doesn't exist. And so there's a few reasons that I think this is really good. Firstly, because the things that don't exist are actually really fucking cool. 
I mean, imagine if someone would pay you to prove that unicorns don't exist. <laughs> to me, axioms are like unicorns, but much, much smaller. <laughs> and secondly, one day, something I study <coughs> might actually turn out to exist in the real world. And imagine how cool that will be. <laughs> a bit like having an imaginary friend and then discovering they were a real person all along and are wondering why you don't talk to them anymore. <laughs> this is my dream, that one day my imaginary particle friends will become real. With that, let me introduce our first comedian, Alison Woolard, geneticist and presenter of the Royal Institution Christmas Lectures 2013. <laughs> I think I want to try, because um, holding a microphone gives the most amazing sensation of power, um, which is very useful at a moment like this, because it's that time of the evening where I think, you know, what part of me thought that it was a good idea to go along and entertain a pub full of people? Um, it's really not something I normally do. So I came in here and I saw on the door my name linked with some form of public entertainment. Uh, so that is the first time that this has ever happened to me, so you're going to have to be really kind to me this evening. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to find this um, science comedy lark a little bit blokey. It all seems to be um, Brian Cox and Robin Ince and Infinite Monkey Cage, and it's all very blokey, so it's, it's really nice to see lots of women here this evening. And as well as being quite blokey, it's, it does tend to also be all about physics. Because I guess physics is quite funny. <laughs> From Fran, we've just heard it's all about ridiculous things, like uh, infinite numbers of universes all, all in parallel, and, and things that don't really exist, and, uh, and everything fitting into a sugar cube. Because it seems that whatever calculation you do, it all fits into a sugar cube. So we're going to be a bit more down to earth for the next ten minutes or so, and we're going to think about biology. So are there any biologists in the house this evening? Hooray! Not many. <laughs> Something to work with. Um, I am a worm person. Um, that means I'm a person who works on worms. And um, I work on a nematode worm called Senorogitis elegans, or C. elegans for short, or the worm even shorter, because we think, we think that our worm is more important than anyone else's worm, so we just call it the worm, and then assume that everyone knows what worm we're talking about. And of course, most of the time they do, because it is the worm. <laughs> and we are incredibly cliquey. So we, we, did, we talk about places, and we evaluate places in the world depending on whether or not there are worm people working there. So someone will say, I'm off on my holidays to Hawaii. And I say, oh, that's great, there's really good worm people there. And someone else will say, well, I'm, I'm going to, to Chile. And I say, what do you want to go there for? There's no worm people. There's not one worm person in Chile. So there we are. We are incredibly um, cliquey. But that's because we are incredibly proud of our organism. So C. elegans is a nematode. And I have a few um, nematode fun facts for you this evening. Um, so did you know, for example, that four-fifths of species in the world are nematodes. So if a Martian came down to Earth and just sampled five million uh, species at random, four million of those would be nematodes. 
In fact, even more strikingly, if that Martian just sampled five million animals of any description at random, four million of those would be nematodes. So it's not just the most prolific species, it has the most, it's the most prolific organism in term, group in terms of the actual number of individuals. And there's a really gruesome saying amongst us worm folk that if all the animals and plants disappeared in the world, that the outlines would be left. And those outlines will be filled out by their nematode parasites. And actually, that's almost, it's quite close to the literal truth. For example, there are three species of nematode parasite living inside the rectum of the American cockroach, Periplaneta americana. <laughs> so, uh, nematodes are everywhere. But the ones I work on are not parasitic. The worms I work on just mind their, mind their own business. They, they live in the wild. They live in compost heaps. They particularly like rotting apples. In the lab, they live on, on, on agar plates, and they eat bacteria, and they defecate every 45 seconds. <laughs> they do. Um, and they carry on doing that until um, we send them off to meet the autoclave bags of doom. <laughs> and, um, that is the end of, of their life. One of the things I want to talk to you about to impress upon you is how easy it is to work on C. elegans because it's incredibly good at reproducing. And um, that's because uh, it's hermaphrodite. Now, I don't know if any of you know about hermaphrodites, but hermaphrodites are basically females that produce some of their own sperm. What's not to like? <laughs> I think that is a brilliant way to go about life, isn't it? But we even have a symbol. I bought this symbol because I think it looks incredibly right on. <laughs> that is the official biological symbol for hermaphroditism. It's like, um, they, don't, they don't like sex. They reproduce all the time. They start early, they do it all the time, but they do it with themselves. They really don't like the idea of intercourse. They're like, I've got that. You know, I can handle that. We don't need any of your sperm. Because there are males, there are a few males. Males are a bit weird. And in C. elegans, as well as, you know, everywhere else, males are but they do exist. They're a bit defective because they've lost one of their X chromosomes. But nevertheless, they do exist. They're a little bit unhealthy. And they do like to have sex with hermaphrodites. But hermaphrodites are not interested at all because they've got that covered. Right? Males are very interested. In fact, males will have tried to have sex with anything, anything at all. Not even things that move, even things that even don't move at all. Bits of plastic, dust, whatever you put in front of them, they've all tried to copulate with. Um, but the, the thing they love to have sex with the most are the hermaphrodites. But hermaphrodites don't need that at all. So it's, um, so it's, a, very, it's a very sort of organised and efficient way of, of building up your population of, um, of animals. Because one hermaphrodite worm will give rise to 300 progeny in three days, right? So 300 progeny in three days, that will produce 90,000 grandchildren in another three days. That's a lot of babies, isn't it? I've got two myself, 90,000 is hard to imagine. And so then if that carries on by the end of the month, you would have those 90,000 then all self-reproduced, there would be 27 million of those animals. And then by the end of the month, there would be about 8,000 million 
And then by the time that mother dies, after about three weeks, that eight billion would have turned that eight uh, that eight billion would have turned into a number with 27 zeros on the end of it. A very, very big number. Uh, a, a very, very big number indeed. So when God promised Abraham that he was going to have descendants that would outnumber the number of stars in the sky or the number of grains of sand on the beach, he failed to mention that he had already made that promise to the worm. <laughs> so worms are very, very easy to grow in the lab. They're very small. In fact, you can't actually see them. But they do definitely exist because you can see them down a microscope. In fact, some people say they can see them without a microscope. I can't because I'm over 45 and I really can't see anything anymore unless I sort of hold it out here and take my glasses off and do all sorts of things. But you can see, the, uh, see them very easily um, down a microscope. And it's almost impossible to kill them. You can starve them, you can put them at different temperatures, you can do all sorts of things with them, and they carry on growing and dividing. So you can build up all these big numbers for you to do your experiments with, unless you're an engineer. Are there any engineers in the house? Yeah, well, I want, I did a what is it with you guys? I, I, I did a collaboration with some engineers. They wanted some worms to take to their lab to do some imaging on. And I said, yes, easy. And they were very worried about having an animal to look after. Like <laughs> and I said, it'll be okay. It's almost impossible to kill worms. They're just on these little petri dishes, and you give them bacteria to eat, and they, they, won't, you know, they won't make a fuss. They'll just be quite happy. And, uh, and so the engineers decided that they were um, going to use glass plates rather than plastic plates, which I thought was kind of a bit weird, but you know, maybe they were worried about recycling or something. So anyway, they had a glass plate with this agar layer and then these worms on the top, so they took loads back to their lab. And then the very next day, they rang me up and they said they're all dead. And I said, what do you mean they're all dead? How can they be dead? It's impossible to kill the worms. And they said, well, they're not moving. They look dead. I said, that's ridiculous. They can't be dead. So I went to the lab and I looked at them, and they were completely dead. <laughs> utterly dead. So I said, well, what have you done with them? Nothing. We did exactly what you said. You know, we fed, we fed them, and we, we had them on these plates, and, you know, we weren't rude to them or anything. And, and they just died. And then I said, well, why were you, where were you keeping them? And they said, well, you said that you could just keep them on the bench. So I said, yeah, but where on the bench? So they took me to this pool of sunlight coming through the window into this little patch on the bench where they'd have these glass plates <laughs> on top. There we are. They had very temperature stressed. The elegance. So that was the end of my um, collaboration with, um, with engineers. So why, you know, I've told you a lot now about why we bother, why on earth do we bother with all this stuff? Why, why do I throw worms and look at them down the microscope? Because that is pretty much what I do all day. I, uh, well, actually, I don't do it because I'm a principal investigator. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, come in, I come in in the morning and I switch on the computer and I, and I start writing grant applications. <laughs> and then people come into my office and I tell them they haven't done the experiment properly. And I remember when I was doing those sorts of experiments, I could easily manage to do five or six of them in parallel and still be, you know, Olympic-level squash player. Always kind of think, so what are they thinking? So, that, so that I don't actually have done that, but other people do. So why? So why do we bother? 
Why do we do all that? And the, and, and the reason we do all that is because we want to find stuff out. We want to understand how biology works. We want to understand how organisms work. And we use C. elegans because it's small and it's simple and it's something that we can understand in a much simpler way. There's only a thousand cells in C. elegans, this one millimetre long worm, whereas we have 40 trillion. So if you're going to try to understand something, you might as well start with a simple model. And the thing about C. elegans is that they're just like us. They are really just like us, <coughs> only smaller and with a very, very small brain and no blood or heart. Or, but they're, they're just details. Basically, <laughs> any multicellular organism displays those things that you need to understand because it starts off as one cell and it becomes an organism composed of lots and lots of different types of cells. And so we, can under, we want to understand how that works. How do we start off as a single fertilised egg and end up as a beautifully complicated organism of 40 trillion cells where all of our cells know exactly what they should be doing. Our heart cells know that they should be beating and our skin cells know that they've got to form some kind of barrier and our kidney cells know that they should be to do with getting rid of waste products. How does all that work? And so that's my gig, developmental biology, trying to understand the genetics, how genes regulate these sorts of processes. And the basic problem I'm interested in is that all of our cells contain exactly the same DNA, that's our genome, but our cells do very different things, so we need to understand how that all works. And C. elegans is one of those model systems you could use to understand that. There are others. And the other thing, the tool that we use is genetics. We say we do genetics. So what does it mean to do genetics? It basically means we fiddle about with genes. We break things. And then we try to work out why they're not working anymore. So we look at a system that's broken, a worm that's broken, because maybe it doesn't make the gut properly. And then we want to work out what is the gene that's gone wrong in order for that defect to happen. And once we can work out what that gene is that's gone wrong, then we've, we've, we've isolated the gene for gut formation, or one of the genes for gut formation. So we, we work with a broken system and then we try to mend it. That's what genetics is. I have, I have an economist friend who says, ah, that's what economists do as well. You know, they, they model these systems and, they, and they, they break them in some way and then they try to work out how it will work again and then they understand the economics. And I thought, ah, that's it. That's why the economy is such shit. It's <laughs> actually a big experiment. They've broken the whole of the economy and the entire world and they, all they need to do is now is figure out how to mend it, and then we will understand economics, and they'll all be in a much better place. So, so, so that's good. <laughs> so so we, we, we work with mutants. So mutants are animals. They could be worms. Actually, there are some other models that people use. They're not as good as worms, but some people work on flies, for example. Is there any fly people? in the audience. Are you a fly person? Only one, I see. Not very popular. <laughs> and there are people that work on things like yeast. Any yeast people? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, a yeast person in the audience. 
that's even more bizarre. <laughs> Why you'd want to do that? It's only got the one cell. But anyway, there are other fantastic models that are useful for all sorts of bits of biology. And they have, we have these mutants. And some of them have really, really weird names, particularly the fly ones. I think fly people got drunk one evening and decided that they were going to do really, really weird names to their mutants. So they have mutants called things like Tin Man. Doesn't have a heart. Um, and called things uh, like um, Cheap Date. Gets pissed really quickly. <laughs> very, very sensitive to alcohol. And they have mutants called things like Sonic Hedgehog. Anyone know? Everyone heard of Sonic Hedgehog? Well, it's a mutant. Hedgehog mutants have weird uh, fly mutants that when they, you have embryos where the bristles all stick up in the wrong way and they kind of look like hedgehog. I don't think they look at all like hedgehogs, actually, but, but fly people think that they do look like hedgehogs. And then there's a mutant, um, Ken and Barbie. Or is it Barbie and Ken? I can't remember. Ken and Barbie, Barbie and Ken. Anyway, those mutants have don't ever develop external genitalia. <laughs> Now, Lunatic Fringe, when, it, when you, Lunatic Fringe was first sort of put forward as a name of a mutant and therefore of a gene, some of the more serious people got quite upset. And there was this committee called the Gene Nomenclature Committee, a sort of anti-fun brigade of science. And they decided that it, wasn't, it just wasn't serious enough to have these crazy names for mutants and therefore for the genes that have gone wrong in these mutants. You have to, we have to have much more sensible names that describe the function. So they um, proposed that lunatic fringe should, and I've had to print this out, had to be renamed LFNG O fucosyl peptide 3 beta N acetyl glucosaminyl transferase. <laughs> because that describes what it does. <laughs> Any biochemists in the house? <laughs> no. So, nobody knows um, what that describes. <laughs> but, um, luckily, um, uh, the, 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 the less serious scientists seem to have won the day, and lunatic fringe is still um, definitely, um, definitely one of the things that you see um, in, the, in the press still. Now, I should say, slightly disappointingly, in the, in the C. elegans world, the names aren't quite so bizarre. They tend to be much more sort of descriptive of the way that the worms look when that gene is lacking. So they're things like dumpy, <laughs> short fat, or long, or blister. Blister's a great one because there's something wrong with the cuticle of the worm and it keeps forming these blisters. And you can spend a happy afternoon popping. <laughs> when they have these blisters and they because they're huge they like take up half their body and they can't move imagine having a blister that's like half your body and they can't move very well and but if you pop them they pop in a very satisfying way and all the fluid comes out i don't know if anyone here likes squeezing spots <laughs> i absolutely love squeezing spots but um, anyway so you can pop these blisters and, and the worms are really happy for a while and then the blisters grow back so it's perfect. The next day you can come along, pop them all again. Keep <laughs> it going for ages. And the other mutant I need to talk to you about this evening is called vulvalus. <laughs> vulvalus. These are worms, hermaphrodite worms that lack a vulva. The vulva being 
a receptacle for sperm, or the organ through which, I need to say orgasm then. <laughs> it's a big danger when you're a biologist because you've got organ and organism, orgasm, often it's like a kind of Tourette's, it sort of creeps in. But the vulva is the organ through which eggs are laid, and vulvalous mutants do not have a vulva. But that's kind of okay if you're a hermaphrodite, isn't it? Because you make your own sperm inside you. So you are self-fertile without having any kind of copulation going on. So you're fine, aren't you? Until you need to lay your eggs. And if you can't lay your eggs, those eggs will hatch inside you. And the little tiny baby worms will eat their way out of their mother. And they will be fine and they will grow up and have a happy childhood. <laughs> and they will have no vulva. And they will be self-fertile. So the population keeps going just fine. But their babies will get revenge by hatching inside the mother and eating their way out. We call that phenotype. Phenotype means the way that the worms look when you fiddle with their genes. We call it the bag of worms <laughs> And we refer to worms that do this as baggers. <laughs> so that's the bag of worms phenotypes. But the, the point of that, um, the, of that phenotype, of that defect, is it illustrates how you make a structure like a vulva or any other structure in the body. Because when it's gone wrong, you can work out what the gene is that's gone wrong and then you've started to work out how things work at the molecular level. Turns out actually that old worms also bag, even though they don't have mutations in them that interfere with the formation of the vulva. So when a worm gets old, its vulva just stops working very well and it starts to retain eggs. And, um, and then those eggs will hatch inside it. So I'm wondering whether that is where the phrase old bag <laughs> Might come from. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess not. I guess not. So, so these mutants tell us about stuff, and they particularly tell us about things like development that I'm interested in. But they tell us about lots of other things as well. In fact, there's almost nothing that you can't work on if you're a geneticist, because any, any behaviour, any structure, any development, any bit of biology that you can disrupt that you can make it go wrong by tweaking the genes, by knocking them out, by introducing mutations, by making them work too hard, producing too much of them. That means you can study that process. So for example, in C. elegans, you can even study sleep, worms sleep. And there are mutants which don't sleep as much as other worms, and they don't live as long. I can identify with that, having had two children. I'm sure I'm not going to live as long as I would if I had not done that. So I should just count my blessings that I haven't backed yet. <laughs> um, and it turns out that if you stress worms, then they have an emergency sleep, which is just like human babies. I don't know if any of you know, but if a baby gets really upset about something, it bangs its head or something, then it has to have an emergency sleep. It's just the same with worms. And you can get, you can get mutants that, that don't do that properly, and then you can start to understand the biology of sleep. You can get mutants that have that have different social behaviour. So most worms that we work on 
are, well, isolated in Bristol. And that's the strain that everybody around the world uses. There's about a thousand labs in the world working on C. elegans. And they tend to work on this strain called Bristol N2. That's the name of the strain. It was dug up from compost heap in Bristol in the 1970s. And that's what people use. It makes sense because everyone uses the same worms, start their experiments, then things can be compared. And the Bristol worms like to be alone. They sort of, they, they live on these plates in a very solitary way. But if you have worms that you dug up in Australia, then they form big groups. And, and, and they always go around in groups. It's like they like to have a party. Whereas the, the British worms, not really into that, they like, they like the solitary life. So you have solitary strains and social strains. And solitary strains are found in the UK and in Denmark. And the, 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 the social strains are found in Australia and Hawaii. <laughs> Brilliant, isn't it? And then, of course, you can, chase, you can trace down the gene that's different between those two strains, those two populations of words, and then you can understand something about the biology of social behaviour. So anything that you learn in the worm, or the fly, or the mouse, or the yeast, or whatever, the idea is that you can then translate that finding into understanding more about, about human biology. And of course that has big ramifications for understanding medicine. And that's the serious point about why we do what we do. We do what we do because we want to try to improve human health. And that's why I think communicating what we do is really important. This is a really nice forum for doing that. And that's really needed, that communication. Do you, does anyone remember Sarah Palin? <laughs> she had some great, she's, got, she's very rich on quotes. And um, when she was, in 2008, when she was running for vice president, um, she, had, she had a real thing about, she had a real anti-science phase, and she said, dollars are going on, um, on, uh, uh, being wasted on biology research on flies, Drosophila flies in Paris, France, I, I kid you not. So that was a really, you know, that was a really powerful quote to say that, you know, here's somebody running for vice president of the United States who has no idea why model organism genetics is important. So that's a, a reason for us to, those of us who work on that, to try to communicate that. But apart from, but apart from trying to understand um, more about human biology, of course, it's all part of just celebrating this fantastic world we have all around us with its amazing diversity. And it's such a privilege to be a biologist. When you, when you try to look at the connections between different species, you feel like you're sort of carrying on the work of Darwin, because you're celebrating what makes us all different, but also what makes us all, all the species on the planet, so highly related to one another. We're all linked, all species are linked through billions and billions and billions of copyings of DNA through four billion years of evolution. And that creates this wonderful world that we have around us that we can celebrate and try to understand. Um, and, I, and, and it's sort of, it's a great privilege to have, to be human, to have evolved a brain big enough to start to understand and appreciate this world around us. And I'm gonna end with a quote from, uh, uh, with, sorry, with a joke, my Darwin joke. Um, and this is um, about a zookeeper. And he, uh, he's looking after the orangutans in the zoo. 
and, and he goes into the zoo one day, and his orangutan is reading two books. He's reading the Bible, and he's reading The Origin of Species. And so the zookeeper is quite perplexed by this. He doesn't seem to be perplexed by the fact that the orangutan is reading, <laughs> but he's perplexed by the idea that the orangutan is reading these two books. So he says, why, why are you reading those two books? And the orangutan says, it's very simple. I'm trying to work out whether I am my brother's keeper or my keeper's brother. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Okay, it seems to be seems to be good, right? So I'd like to tell you the story of how I got into science in the first place. So when I was eight, I read Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And this is an incredibly cruel thing to do to a child, because it meant I spent three years waiting to go to Hogwarts. <laughs> Um, as you might know, the Hogwarts owls get sent out at age 11. So, you know, I knew I'd have to wait. I was realistic about it. And when, when I was 11 and the Hogwarts owls didn't come, I, I must have got lost or something, you know. Um, I decided to become a scientist. I decided to become a scientist when I was 12 because I gave them a year to rectify that mistake. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I reasoned and still firmly believe that being a scientist is actually quite a lot like being a witch or a wizard. For a start, scientists can predict the future. This power is admittedly quite limited. We can't tell you when you're going to die, or what you'll dream about tonight, or even really whether or not it will rain tomorrow. But if you give us a computer and a system of stars and planets, we can have a pretty good stab at uh, telling you what's going to happen to it in the future. And we're getting better and better at this. My image of myself as literally a wizard is getting less and less inaccurate. Is an, also, science can do incredible things. Science can let us talk to someone on the other side of the world. It can let us cure previously incurable diseases. And at the push of a button, we have access to the sum of human knowledge and cat videos and this page about um, huge dogs that think they're lap dogs. You should all Google that when you get home. Is this as good as being Harry Potter? No, of course it's not. I still want a hippogriff and the ability to talk to snakes. But failing that, science is pretty good. Um, now... When I got into science, I realised that not many other women had actually followed this line of reasoning. Okay, maybe no one else at all followed that exact line of reasoning. <laughs> but there's still a mysterious lack of women in science. Um, so I should warn you, the next part is going to be a kind of feminist discussion. So um, if you might find that uncomfortable or offensive, maybe because you're a misogynist. <laughs> then you've been warned, you can go and get a drink, and you know, don't feel like you have to come back. <laughs> so, why are there so few women in science? Is it because our delicate lady brains can't handle abstract mathematics? I mean, I personally find it impossible to do a perturbative expansion of an interactive quantum field theory without immediately surrounding it with hearts and flowers and <laughs> 
Is it because women want to spend all their time prancing around writing poetry and baking biscuits? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, art students. <laughs> Is it because they always put the science textbooks on really high shelves? <laughs> this one is true. My normal technique is to launch myself into the bookcase and see what falls down. <laughs> um, well, I think there's actually something else going on. Um, something else going on here, so I just want to show you something quickly. I'm not actually stripping. <laughs> I realise it's not that kind of place. <laughs> I should throw this into the crowd now. <laughs> right. For those who can't read, it says, I'm too pretty to do maths. Uh, well, it says map because it's American and they can't spell. <laughs> so, yes, I bought the t shirt to make a point. And if I'd applied this logic as an undergrad, I'd have had a lot more free time. <laughs> Nobody told me that conventional attractiveness counted as equivalent to mathematical ability. <laughs> and let me tell you, why would I revise vector calculus for 10 hours when slapping on some makeup and brushing my hair is apparently a totally acceptable alternative? <laughs> of course, if I followed that logic, I might not have gone into physics. Um, and obviously, I'm wearing this t-shirt in a kind of ironic, humble, braggy way. But people wear it seriously, and it also comes in children's sizes. So that's nice. Um, and I think the gendering of children and children's toys is actually a particularly big concern. Why do there have to be girls' toys and boys' toys? Why can't children just play with whatever toys they want? And why are the girls' toys always bloody pink? <laughs> there are other colours. Um, and there are two problems with this. Firstly, all children should be able to play with whatever toys they want without social anxiety or being told they're doing it wrong. And secondly, the girls' toys are shit. <laughs> For example, toys marketed at boys include construction kits like Lego and Kinects, out of which it's possible to build a functioning computer. I mean, when I say functioning, it won't have video editing capabilities or a Wi-Fi connection, but these are seriously cool toys. And then to the girls, we say, oh, have this doll. You can look at it and practice for when you're a stay-at-home wife. And once again, the boys get the cool stuff, and the girls are left holding the baby. And in this case, the baby is made out of plastic, and nobody needs to be holding it. <laughs> I think this, I mean, this really impacts people and it affects the way children see themselves. And particularly in my field of theoretical physics, there are really no women. You might have heard that in the Ministry of Defence, there are more men named Dave than there are women. <laughs> well, in my subfield, um, so axiom phenomenology, there are more men named David Marsh than there are women. <laughs> this is clearly a big problem. Um, so it's a problem firstly because it's horribly unfair, people should be encouraged to go into whatever career they want. 
And secondly, science needs women. If science doesn't get females in, we don't encourage women into science, then we're missing out on 50% of the available talent, and science will probably happen slower. So if you want your jetpack, you'd better support gender equality. <laughs> it also can make things difficult for women that are already in science. Um, as you might know, there are sort of certain idiosyncrasies to being a modern woman. Um, who's been catcalled here? Yeah. Um, I find this really unpleasant. Some people say it's a compliment, so I just want to clarify. Um, my Fran, that was an excellent advanced quantum field theory tutorial. Really enlightening is a compliment. Nice tits, love, is not a compliment. <laughs> Does everyone understand the difference? <laughs> Being in Britain, um, I've also on occasion experienced the phenomenon of the polite catcall. Um, so this happened once in York Town Centre, middle of the day, busy street. This guy clearly didn't think he was doing anything wrong. Um, this older chap came up to me and he said, excuse me, your breasts are, um, they're quite nice. <laughs> So now we've gotten through the feminist stuff, I thought I'd lighten the mood with some kind of slapstick stuff about me falling over while skiing. Um, I didn't actually realise that one of the perks of being a scientist would be heavily subsidised skiing trips disguised as conferences. <laughs> Fun surprise. Although I have to say, it really brought home the difference between understanding Newton's laws in theory and applying them in practice, particularly the coefficient of friction, or lack thereof. I initially, for some reason, thought I'd be quite good at skiing, um, and then I realised there was a reason I'd become a theoretical physicist. Um, the first challenge is actually getting onto the ski lift. When you're on the little baby slopes, you don't get one of the ski lifts that you sit on. You get this kind of circular thing that comes round towards you and you have to grab it and shove it between your legs. Grab and shove. And it's, it's hard, I have to say. Um, and so that was always successful. And then eventually you get to the top and you realise that starting to ski is very easy. I'm an excellent skier. I just require a totally deserted slope with half a mile runoff at the end for me to stop. <laughs> That's not what you get. What you get is a sudden influx of small children in front of you with tiny adorable little skis and tiny adorable little hats. And then you have the choice between plowing into them and impaling several small children on your skis or executing a tactical fall on the arse. You'll be pleased to know I always went for the ethical option and I got very bruised. Meanwhile, of course, the locals are gliding past. They've been skiing since they were four. They're gliding past backwards while on the phone and holding a medium-sized dog. Give me a nonlinear differential equation any day.
the value of the Higgs field will change. It will change from 246 to something else, to 5 billion trillion, or something like that. And when that happens, reality as we know it will cease to exist. Not over-dramatising, I'm just telling it like it is. <laughs> because the Higgs, the Higgs field has every kind of behave, if it changes, the laws of physics will change, the way the universe works will change, and the chance that those new laws of physics will support human life is pretty small, quite small. So how will this change happen? Well, it will start at some point in space, of course. Um, could be a million, million light years away. Maybe it's already started and we just haven't noticed yet. Or it could be right over there. You should be worried. <laughs> And then the change will propagate towards us, travelling at the speed of light. As you know, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, which means there'll be no way of telling that our doom is upon us until it's already upon us. My guess is that it will be a quick and painless death. <laughs> That's nice. Now, there's really no point in worrying about this too much, actually. Firstly, because there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. And it's very unlikely to happen. It probably won't happen for billions and billions and billions of years, if at all. It's just that, technically, it could happen right now. <laughs> okay. Seem to be okay for the moment. And also, I mean, we're much more likely to be killed by an asteroid impact, or blowing ourselves up with nuclear weapons, or a terrible plague. <laughs> so I, I think that's reassuring to think about. <laughs> I think in some way that feels to me to be preferable to Higgs decay. It just seems like a more normal way to go, at least. I might be atomised, but at least the laws of physics that hold me together won't cease to exist entirely. So I hope that's given you something to think about. Um, in retrospect, I realise that it might be existentially preferable not to know that the entire human race might be destroyed without reason or warning at any minute. But, you know, science is fun! <laughs> So, without further ado, now is probably a good time to introduce our headline act, Dean Burnett. Enjoy him while you can. Thank you. Um, quite enjoyed that. I've never had a minion before. But, um, <laughs> the old professor feels all the time. Um, yes, that, uh, thank you uh, for having me. Thank you for turned up. Um, I, I did request an introduction and she asked like, uh, how do you want to be introduced? If you could explain to everyone how they might die any second. <laughs> <laughs> really low threshold for you know, success on my part. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, so my name is Dean Burnett. I am a neuroscientist, psychiatry lecturer. I uh, write for The Guardian and I'm here right now, um, which is obviously <laughs> tangibly demonstrable. Um, <laughs> I uh, basically this is sort of my uh, effort, my attempt to uh, display sort of my findings from the last ten years. Because since 2005, 
I have been attempting to uh, uh, perform stand-up comedy uh, in a scientifically accurate sense. So we kind of sort of demonstrate that science and comedy are in fact compatible. Um, uh, so this is my, that was my hypothesis, and uh, sticking to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, never, never overestimate the importance of a null result. And, uh, I uh, will forewarn you that um, I did not, I do not have any hermaphrodite material. Something like that in the first part. I didn't realise they were as popular as they are. In fact, I asked a biologist friend of mine to walk and tell me about hermaphrodites. He said hermaphrodites can go fuck themselves. And, uh, <laughs> So my template is to sort of explain to you how I have tried to combine uh, science and comedy in a successful sense, um, but by using the scientific method, uh, because that, of course, is ultimately reliable and works in every conceivable context. Uh, so what I will do, basically, I'll uh, sort of introduce myself, my, uh, my approach, and why I do this sort of thing. And then I'll go with some of the methods I've used to uh, study comedy, and then I'll tell you about some of the results I found, and then we'll discuss those. And then I'll get the conclusion. And uh, that bit there, that was my abstract. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I should say spoiler warning, but believe me, there's not a lot to spoil. Um, so, uh, by way of introduction, I, uh, I don't do introductions very well, I'm very, very bad at introductions. And it's not some sort of not a personal issue, I, I don't actually have any problem with people, uh, per se, I know that's a scientific cliche, but uh, I, I don't, it's just that I, I, I'm okay with hello, hello is okay, I can say hello to someone, hello, hello. Uh, that, that, that was fine, that was good, um, but beyond that, uh, just too many variables, uh, I can't actually <laughs> take them into account, hello is okay, because that's me saying, you exist, and you say hello back, say so do you, again, two, two tangible facts, uh, but apart from that, I have no data to base any sort of forward strategy on, and um, I, I don't have options, but I have too many options, I, I, I'm Flummoxed by choice far too quickly. I have tried to, um, to engage in interaction uh, in a public context before. It's um, meant limited success. Uh, like last time I tried in an environment like this to talk to someone from a stage, didn't go particularly well. I, I sort of was standing there and I was trying to talk and um, it wasn't going too well. Uh, the response was quite you know, hostile. And I thought, I'll, I'll talk to someone, show I'm an approachable person. So I said to the person in the front row, the woman, she was quite dressed up, so I thought she's, you know, she's not too opposed to you know, obviously standing out in the crowd, so this should be okay. I said to her, hello. She said, hello back. So far, so good. And again, I was sort of um, gone up to this point, so I just stayed there for a good 30 seconds for things to say, which was apparently unnerving. <laughs> And so I thought, well, she's clearly quite, quite distressed at this point, not the weird guy staring at her for no reason. So I thought, I'll pay her a compliment, because that's a nice thing to do. I said to her, I like your hair. Uh, on paper, that would have been fine. But um, in practice, the pause between your and hair was <laughs> overly long. And the implication was that I had uh, assessed all her physical characteristics. <laughs> Found nothing to my liking, and they're setting on the least offensive property she had, which in this case was her hair. But that wasn't the fact at all. It was actually, um, I, if I realised what you thought, I said, no, no, that, that pause wasn't me finding nothing nice about you. That's the opposite. In fact, I, that pause me stopped myself from saying nice breasts, because that, that was the most obvious thing. You know, but you can't say that out loud, because that's you know, rude and uh, inconsiderate. Uh, but I explained it out loud in front of everyone. So she was crying at this point. And her husband then starts you know, having a go at me. He says, I'm ruining the wedding. And, uh, <laughs> in my, my defence, I didn't ask to be best man. I was, uh, <laughs> he acted into it because apparently having the same parents mean we, we should get along. And, <laughs> 
that's sort of why I don't do a lot of uh, interaction, as it were. So um, I, uh, I actually did try and study other methods, as you do with science, actually. I stand on the shoulders of giants, and, or you know, reasonably sized people. And uh, I, I couldn't, couldn't find the useful, the most effective way of introduction I, could, I found was actually, uh, well, I'll just say like the most effective introduction was, uh, <clears throat> hello, are you well? People normally say yes at that point. So. <laughs> hello, welcome to my comedy roadshow. Lovely back in Birmingham. Birmingham, my favorite city. Um, skip. Oh, so that, that's a stage direction. Um, <laughs> then it's something about talking to Hester Blumenthal, which actually doesn't actually... Um, uh, I saw it on a TV show, it worked very well then, but I guess it must be context-dependent. And for, for the record, I will not talk to Hester Blumenthal, even if he here right now, because I'm not a big fan of Hester Blumenthal. Firstly, he did steal my look. And um, secondly, he pretends to be a scientist when he is in fact not. He has no control groups, he has no sort of uh, forward. It doesn't have to be rigorously scientist. And also, uh, when, he, when he does cook food, he always gives it to the English celebrities, which I think is a bit of a waste, because you know, I'm, I, I'm impressed by the food, but I, I, don't, I don't know the sort of person who would sit there and think, I would be impressed, but I need to know what Vernon Kay thinks. That isn't something I think what people should face their opinions on. And so what I thought I'd do, I'd start off with this, uh, introduce myself, as I do in every uh, social context with a series of detailed apologies. <laughs> Firstly, I apologise for the title of this set slash show. Uh, this, the full title is I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here, which is misleading in many ways. Uh, it sort of sounds like I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. It's not that. Uh, that actually is an existing science outreach programme where they have proper scientists to go and engage with normally school children and try and show that scientists are friendly, approachable, sociable, nice, uh, amusing, uh, lovely people. Uh, I'm not affiliated with them for reasons which will soon become obvious. <laughs> um, also, we'll have a different title to, to avoid any confusion, but it wasn't different enough, so confusion occurred nonetheless. I also, uh, the implication of the title is that uh, I'm a scientist, which is not the case, but this isn't science. Uh, I'm aware of that, so I just thought I'd call it something a bit like science, but not quite. Uh, again, causing more confusion, uh, which is something science does a lot, which is quite ironic. And uh, the implication, I'm a scientist, get me out of here, implies that I am here under duress, uh, I'm not, I volunteered to come here, I actually got the train myself. Uh, at no point do I require liberation. Uh, even if it is going badly, again, it's, it's all my own doing, so don't feel you have to step in and sort of tackle me to the ground. Uh, unless, of course, it's going that badly. <laughs> in which case, I think everyone would probably appreciate it. And I also want to apologise because I am wearing a lab coat for no discernible reason. Uh, but I'm sort of pretending to talk my science in public. And if you do that, you have to wear a lab coat, otherwise people don't think you're a scientist according to all the data. Um, I did spend five years getting my PhD in order to become a scientist, but I could have spent five minutes buying a lab coat for all the different to make to non-scientists. Because uh, I am wearing a uh, lab coat to conform, uh, but also I'm wearing a blue lab coat. So, you know, I look a bit different, like a rebel. <laughs> so that's uh, how I do that sort of thing. So, um, so introductions. Well, the point of the introductions would be to, uh, in the comedy sense, uh, I basically endear myself to you people because the point of doing this comedy is that I want to sort of try and show that science can be funny. Uh, but science and comedy are generally regarded as incompatible because comedy and jokes are sort of frivolous. They're quite ridiculous. They don't have any sense of logic. You think they've got to be illogical. They don't stand up under much scrutiny, whereas science is all about analysis and scrutiny and sort of repeating data and getting something very rigorously defined and informed. Uh, there's a classic quote which says that uh, analysing a joke is like dissecting a frog, nobody laughs, and the frog dies. <laughs> 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 one that I don't agree with, 
Um, first off, if you know where they're the frog, can be quite amusing. Um, <laughs> a lot of wobbly bits, you know, quite funny for that sort of mentality. And uh, if you're dissecting a frog, it should already be dead. Uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't kill the frog. That, that's actually slaughter. That's not uh, dissection. That's, um, I think, quite, if, if, you, if you find someone laughing whilst uh, cutting a frog, uh, someone cutting up a, a living frog, that's not a scientist. That's probably a psychopath. You <laughs> shouldn't take cliches from psychopaths. They tend to be quite self-interested. So that's sort of uh, the, the, the challenge I have uh, set up against me. I let that guy want to try and challenge this sort of uh, default assumption that science and comedy are incompatible. <coughs> uh, some of you might agree with this, perhaps, but um, uh, I will say that uh, throughout this uh, set I'm doing, there may be a few lulls. That's quite normal after 10, 15 minutes. There's a bit of a lull. People sort of get a bit tired and interest, but I have some jokes prepared <coughs> for those levels, so it doesn't seem so bad. But um, these are all classic jokes, which is as close as comedy gets to peer review. And, um, <laughs> And I've got them, but uh, a lot of those jokes weren't scientifically accurate, so I've sort of updated them a bit. And so there's that. But so I thought I'd introduce myself because, uh, by way of introduction, we uh, form a bond, a sort of social bond. If someone is on stage and you feel like a sort of kinship or affection for them, it makes it easier to laugh at them. That's quite important in comedy. So I have some personal facts to tell you with which we can form some sort of bond. Uh, personal fact one I am Welsh. Um, I, I'm not proud of this fact, or not proud of this fact, it is simply a statement of being. And I've never been anything other than Welsh, so I cannot calibrate uh, how proud I should feel about this. <laughs> Even if I had been, um, my being Welsh wasn't anything I had any involvement with. I cannot claim credit for that. It was uh, the fault of my parents, when they happened to be while I was conceived. Um, they may have planned it, but uh, from what I'm told, planning didn't feature much in my birth. So, uh, <laughs> I can't actually have uh, a go at that, but um, being Welsh hasn't been that much of a problem when it comes to being a scientist, except uh, it's not only a problem unless you are, like me, a neuroscientist, because uh, the accent doesn't lend itself, apparently, to a seriously repeated discussion of neuroscientific analysis, or neuroscientific analysis, which <laughs> <laughs> apparently distracts from the message. <coughs> the accent itself did actually prove quite difficult. Uh, during my uh, my school years, uh, well, not none of my school years, because everyone else in my school talked like me. Um, but also, I was the only scientist in my school. If you added up, uh, it was a kind of rundown, rough school. But if you added up all the uh, physics A level, uh, physics A level, biology A level, and chemistry A level classes in my school during my year A levels, you got six students. Three of these students students were me. Uh, so I got a lot of support from the teachers. I thought they were just encouraging me to be a good scientist to embrace the field. But it turns out that. Um, it was more from the fact that that was half the science department, so if I got a bad mark on an exam, the entire school average went down. <laughs> that affected the league tables. Yeah, so I, I wanted to be a scientist from a young age, uh, because I am, um, well, people ask you, like, what made you want to be a scientist? What got you into science? Well, I didn't really know what I wanted to be, but then one day I looked in the mirror and realized that uh, I looked like this. So that was, uh, I thought, people are going to assume I am anyway, I may as well go with it. Uh, I was also in a lab coat at the time, which is just a strange coincidence. <laughs> yeah, so I thought, well, what science really needs right now is another bald in, short sighted white man bugging off his own opinions, because there's not enough of those going around. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was handy. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to be a scientist, and I applied for university, which is rare for my school. And uh, they told me that I should apply for Cambridge University, because, quote-unquote, it is the best university in the UK. Sorry, I offended you, Oxford. Really? 
one of the 26 prime ministers you produced will help you with address that at some point. <laughs> but I went to Cambridge University, um, and I had an interview there because they were going to one of their regular Let's Let the Proles in phase. <laughs> and, yeah, sorry, that's a bit too close to home, sorry. <laughs> and uh, I actually asked the careers advisor, my school, a professional careers advisor, careers advisor, the job of which is to uh, give advice about careers. Um, I asked him, Mr. Davis, I said, what can you tell me about Cambridge University? And he said to me, this is a literal quote, he said, Dean, the only people who go to Cambridge are gays and Russian spies. They <laughs> may not surprise you, I don't know. <laughs> but I was told, as a very naive child, that the only people who go to Cambridge are gays and Russian spies. Now, I knew at the time that I wasn't a Russian spy. <laughs> Reasonably sure I wasn't gay, but oh, I never had a girlfriend, but I did sort of want one. So that was, um, that was how I had to go on. But I did go to university. And uh, it wasn't, um, like, I went to Cambridge for an interview. It didn't go well, I'll say, because um, I talked like this. And uh, we were actually waiting in the uh, interview room, like, with all the other students uh, applying to go to Cambridge. And they were having a big discussion about uh, the most recent debate meet, you know, debate clubs. And uh, one of them was talking about how, like, they, you know, the debate subject was, um, does Shakespearean teaching actually have any ramifications in a post 20th century world? Or, like, um, it can, like, a gender selective abortion be ever justified in an ethical context? And they said to me, what was the subject of your last school debate? Uh, I don't lie well under pressure. Uh, so I said, well, Darren said that Michael snogged his girlfriend, and he denied it, so they had a debate behind the mic shed. That was just I could come up with. Um, so yes, I didn't have to go to Cambridge as it happens, and uh, I'm very glad of that, because I wouldn't have fit in. Um, but that's fine, that's fine, I'm okay with that. So that's uh, so my, my school days, that's why I became a scientist. Uh, but yes, uh, childhood, um, a lot of comedians talk about their angst, uh, sort of going up their, sort of their background. Um, I can't really do that. I had a normal childhood, nothing really to report. Um, my parents did get divorced at a young age. I feel that uh, sort of, uh, children of divorced parents tend to be emotionally stunted. I um, don't know how I feel about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I've also like, I got picked on a little bit as a kid. Um, basically, I've looked like this since I was 15, which... It's a bit much. Uh, well, it's, um, it's, 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 I actually have had problems with it. Um, I actually uh, met a friend of mine, and, uh, and he said to me, where were you this weekend? Because I was going to a party. So I couldn't go. It was my wife's 30th birthday. And, uh, and he said to me, quote, unquote, ooh, I bet you can't eat glitter. Which, <laughs> given my complete utter lack of involvement with progressive glam rock, I uh, <laughs> assume there's more reference to his later, uh, less uh, salubrious career as a child molester. Uh, so I, I said, what do you mean by that? Can I do that? He goes, oh, going out with a much younger woman. I said, well, my wife is two years older than me. And his exact quote was, fuck me, what happened to you? <laughs> sort of company I keep as it happens. <laughs> so yes, that was, uh, that was fun. Yes, uh, so yes, I actually work uh, as a psychiatrist these days. Well, I work in the psychiatry department. I teach it. I'm a neuroscientist by training. Uh, but I've I stopped telling people that uh, I work in psychiatry because well, the non-scientists needs to get a bit paranoid about it. It sort of causes a, you know, a close-up and get a kind of frosty reaction, which uh, I tried to work out why that was. The people were afraid of being psychoanalyzed. They were afraid that I'll uh, you know, analyze them, find some sort of flaw or issue, or maybe diagnose them as some sort of problem. Apparently it's more simple than that, at least amongst the male people I talked to. A friend of mine said that uh, people are just worried that I'll tell them that they're gay, which was a surprise. Um, and you know, the exact Calls. Perhaps the homosexuality hasn't yet been established, but it's not my decision. 
have a level of authority. And if I did, I would not use it wisely. <laughs> but, you know, it's genuine phobia. The worst one I actually uh, dealt with some friends. And uh, they offended at the May offense. And we sat next to some guys who were less than, you know, uh, refined. Uh, they were sort of lads, sort of talkier fans, that sort of thing. Um, they were getting a bit drunker than everyone else and started shouting and talking out loud about rather gr grotesque stories that they've shared. And I wrote one down. The louder one started saying, <coughs> quote, unquote, hey, hey, remember, remember, <laughs> remember, remember that time you went to Benidorm, right? And, and we were sharing a room, right? And, uh, right? <laughs> and we'd been to the pub, and I'm like, that's a literal. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and we went to the pub and we were like, drunk, like, we were back in the room, right? And you were trying to have a wank, but you couldn't because you were too drunk. So, so I wanked us both off. Remember that? Ha ha ha. At this point, uh, he sort of stopped laughing and realised what he said out loud in uh, mixed company. And then turned to me and said, We're not gay, though. It wasn't gay. Fresh after his flight, it was quite gay. <laughs> judgment, but you sexually pleasured someone of the same sex, and that, that, that is textbook gay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I have that textbook, it does say that. <laughs> sort of, um, why don't tell people I do? I actually, um, I've never had a job which I can tell people about. Before I did my PhD, I actually worked for 18 months as a cadaver embalmer for a medical school, and it was sounds unpleasant, and yeah, it was. Um, no funny point to add to that. It was quite funny. It actually made me quite a morbid person, as you might expect. You handle dead people all day, every day. That will happen. I actually met, I met my old school friend once while I was working this job. He said to me, Dean, how are you doing? How's life? I said, life is short, pointless, and undignified. No. Does your love life? It's pretty much exactly the same. <laughs> Which was uh, alternative. But I actually, this is what, that's what first stopped me doing comedy, because I thought, well, I'll, what do I do all day, every day? I handle dead bodies. I should do the exact opposite, cheat myself up. I'll handle live bodies, I'll be a prostitute. Um, which my wife wasn't too keen on. I'll be honest, uh, explain to me that I'm not qualified to be a prostitute. Um, we argue over terminology. She says premature, I say efficient, but anyway. <laughs> I'll do it, I'll do something close. I'll be a comedian, I'll play to people verbally. And um, of course, I hadn't actually done it before. I was quite nervous, so I thought I'd practice on the dead bodies. That would be excellent practice for a room full of people hearing my jokes and nobody laughs. Which was kind of logically sound, but then of course I did my first ever set, someone did laugh and essentially shit myself. Personal fact four. Uh, I am married, as I've said. Uh, I have a child. Um, I know some people think like, how would someone like this get married? Um, I don't know, I have no answer to that, but um, I will say that, you know when you see an ugly guy, the woman who's far too good for him, we do know you're looking at us. Uh, I also have a child, and it's quite uh, sort of, uh, not done these days to talk about your children, it's considered boring, also self-indulgent, but uh, I'm, I'm not actually ashamed of my son at all, I'm very proud of him, he's actually smarter than me in many ways already, at the age of two. He's actually smarter than me from six months onwards. Uh, he, he learned this trick whereby if I was in a public place and had to change his nappy, I'd take him into the public toilet and I'd take his nappy off. And that's when he decided he needed to urinate again. Uh, but he, of course, this time he urinated on me, which is funny enough in its own right. But for some reason, he'd always managed to urinate on the crotch of my trousers. <laughs> so I'd have to leave the toilet with a very, very damp crotch. And I'd explain myself to the staff, which would be involved me saying, it's not what you think it is. It is this, <laughs> but it's not mine. <laughs> it's a child. 
never again wound up police being involved. So that's why I don't. Uh, also, I don't like to. Well, I'd be told I shouldn't share pictures of my child on Facebook very often because apparently that's uh, boring. That's like boring and tedious. I'm told this by someone who uh, regularly posts the number of uh, miles he's run. It's a gym session. But, um, <laughs> pictures of his meals, accompanied by descriptions of the said meals, which are, of course, endlessly fascinating. <laughs> yes. So, um, those are personal facts about me. Uh, we are now friends. Should uh, <laughs> I ever require a, uh, you know, um, a personal statement in a job application or a legal setting, I'm sure I can rely on everyone here. Yes. Good, so that's official, being recorded. Um, this feels like a lull, okay. There are some jokes. Scientifically accurate jokes, which I think are improvements on the originals. A man goes into the doctors and says, Doctor, Doctor, I feel like a pair of curtains. Already quite a good setup, because that's a psychologically unknown phenomenon. That's actually a, a whole new disorder there. That's really kind of strange. There's no known psychiatric disorder which conveys itself by the sensation of thinking you are to have fun. That's actually very interesting premise. Uh, the doctor says, put yourself together. I guess the humour lies in the fact that he's a terrible doctor, because uh, he's failed in every basic duty of <laughs> He's made no attempt to address the patient's concerns. He has actually, you know, neglected entirely. He subscribed a counselling session. Um, even if he didn't care about the patient, there is actually, you know, there's a paper to be had in this. That's actually a new phenomenon. A case study, at least, would be warranted. He's let himself down, the patient, he's let science down. And I think that is unforgivable. He's possibly, well, I wouldn't say the worst doctor ever, because that's the title still held by Shipman, I think. But, uh, <laughs> not a good one. Let's go that. Terrible <clears throat> A horse walks into the bar. The barman says, I have a long face. And the horse says, Everybody's selective pressures. <laughs> An atom, two atoms walking on the road, and one says to the other one, I've lost an electron. And the other one says, Are you sure? He says, Yes, I'm positive. <laughs> now, that, that joke to me is too far fetched. Um, I'm okay with atoms under discussion. I know they lack the complexity to do that. But by saying two atoms walking down the road implies we know both their velocity and their location. Which, <laughs> as we know, isn't possible. So, that joke is farcical. Okay, and that's the level. We enjoyed the love. <laughs> method section. <laughs> what methods have I tried in applying to, to, to what methods have I applied to try and debate that comedy and science are in fact uh, compatible? Uh, there are several different methods of comedy, uh, all of which I've tried at some point. Uh, there's the classic method, basically, trying to tell jokes you know, in the scientific sense, like I just did. As you can see, it has mixed results. It's not a reliable uh, method to use. Other people have tried it and failed, other people have not. So it's sort of, it's uh, in progress. Observational comedy. Now I resent this term because all comedy is technically observational. It has to be observed in order to be said to be comedy in a way, shape, or form. If it's not being observed, it's not comedy. It is someone telling jokes out loud for no one. Uh, it doesn't count as comedy. Uh, like it's an old classic comedian saying, if a joke is told in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does Jack White also get a TV show out of it? <laughs> not bad. Of course, it's also the observer effect, of course. If, like, if someone tells a joke and the observer actually clashes the waveform in which the universe that actually joke is told, then it's actually up to the observer to make it a funny joke in the first place. So by saying that which isn't funny, scientifically speaking, it is technically your fault. <laughs> so you observed it and collapsed the wrong waveform. I, I basically, I'm, I'm setting up the parameters, I'm setting up the super states, you're responsible for that. I cannot be held accountable for lack of jokes. 
I took, actually wrote my driving test, actually. I was actually <laughs> on a driving test, and I actually, um, uh, let's say, I uh, basically turned a tight corner, and uh, I said, like, oh, we didn't check the blind spot. I said, well, according to a classical quantum theory, that uh, in order to check the blind spot, if there was a car there, I would cause it to exist. Uh, so I'm not checking the blind spot. <laughs> And then I said the same thing, I shouldn't check it, otherwise I'd be responsible and I'd have to claim the insurance. And uh, excuse my plugs for that, and then I went over a cat, which is quite annoying. <laughs> they clarified it was dead. <laughs> yeah, so um, actually, the observe effect came up a lot of my, uh, my driving tests, actually. I actually did the, that uh, was the, the practical test, but I actually almost failed my driving test, the theory test, because of you know, my. Scientific tendencies. I mean, who here has done a driving test in the last like 15, 20 years? You haven't got to it's fine, it's Oxford, you've got a bike, you don't know it's not that's allowed. But um, yeah, so like, if you haven't done a theory test you know, recently, it's basically a series of questions, uh, multiple choice, which are all relatively straightforward. Something like, you are following a horse on a road and you approach a crossroads. Does the horse go A, left, B, right, C, straight ahead, D, any of the above, it is a horse. <laughs> As it is deep, it is a horse, you have no control over this creature. Which is fair enough, but then it got then a bit of a problem because it got onto the, uh, the hazard perception test. Now, hazard perception test is where you sit and look at the video filmed from the car's perspective, and you press a button whenever you see a hazard. Fairly straightforward, but me and the DVLA, we differ on what difference. <laughs> As a scientist, I'm far more thorough than they are. So I actually made some notes of that. Okay, so video number one, the hazard perception test. One second, journey begins. Video is shot from an interior of a moving car. With no evidence to the contrary, it is likely powered by a traditional internal combustion engine that runs on petrol or diesel. The burden of which releases CO2 into the atmosphere, the global warming, or climate change, which could likely lead to dislocation and deaths of entire civilizations. One hazard. Four seconds. View from vehicle shows it is a sunny day. Direct sunlight results in exposure to UV rays which are carcinogenic, causing cancer, which of course can be a fatal condition. One hazard. <laughs> Six seconds. Side of road reveals grassy terrain. Grass releases pollen into the air, which in summertime causes hay fever. It's kind of skew your vision. Very dangerous when driving a car. One hazard. Nine seconds. Oncoming car appears to be a BMW, a vehicle of German origin. <laughs> Despite the steep decline in recent decades, <laughs> there's a large number of vehicles, <laughs> German vehicles, which have caused human deaths <laughs> within the last hundred years. For reference, see World War I and World War II. <laughs> One hazard. <laughs> Eleven seconds. Oncoming car appears to be driven by a woman. <laughs> there is no known data to suggest that women have any difference in driving ability. No hazard. <laughs> Although it's a hazard in bringing up in a public context. <laughs> Maybe self-limiting. 15 seconds. Pedestrians on the side of road. Maybe mother and child. Child is going to baseball camp. Could be a mugger later in life. I will be sure to defend myself. What hazard? <laughs> 20 seconds. In this scenario, I am driving the car. I don't have a driving license. One hazard. <laughs> Five videos in total. The score of an, uh, overall score of 463 hazards. That is a record. <laughs> That's why I don't do observational stuff. Topical comedy. You know, just now when I mentioned the frog, what was that about? <laughs> Recent, happened. <laughs> Nostalgic comedy. Remember when I mentioned the frog just now? <laughs> what was 
will spend an enormous episode to bring on. <laughs> Anecdotal comedy. Uh, anecdotal evidence is not real evidence, so reject it out of hand. <laughs> Surreal comedy, yes. <laughs> Silent comedy, bit too late for that. Comedy of errors, yes, it has been. <laughs> These are all the methods I've tried over the last 10 years, most of which have uh, come to little or no uh, conclusion. You can take a lull again, so I'll try another one. Some more jokes. What do you call a man with a spade in his head? Uh, an ambulance. He's actually really rocks massive cranial trauma. You should at least try to help. He probably is dead, but you know, you make some sort of token effort to sustain him. Don't call his name. Even if his name is Doug, he's not going to listen. He has got, as referenced, a spade in his head. A horse walks into the bar. The barman says, Why the long face? And the horse says, Evolutionary selective pressures. I realise I said that already, but you, know, you can't make an inclusive one data point, so I have to repeat it. <laughs> How does Batman's mother let him know it's dinner time? Well. Okay. Batman's mother is dead. So, um, <laughs> some people say dinner, 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 Batman, but his mother, the whole point of Batman is his parents are dead, that was sort of the origin story. In this whole film franchise about it now, you should know that. But it really isn't that uh, hard to say. Okay, results of my efforts. Uh, not great, I wouldn't say it was statistically significant. Uh, there's been a few different attempts trying to convey science in a comedy setting. I actually uh, went to Africa many once, and uh, I actually used to use a bit about um, big bones being used as an excuse for being overweight, which I don't use anymore, it seems quite cruel in hindsight. But I actually did say, um, the point was I would say, like, well, people say, like, if you're overweight, you've got big bones, which is not the case. Because you know, big bones do exist, but they're normally in museums. Um, I was halfway through the set and someone laughed. And that surprised me. It shows you how well it was going. I said, why are you laughing? Well, weird thing to ask of me on stage. But, uh, she said, oh, I used to be big boned. Uh, which my initial response was, genuinely, did you enjoy your time on the International Space Station? <laughs> Got a very strange response, like looking at a room full of owls. <laughs> And uh, one of the biggest prolonged periods of microgravity actually cause calcium depletion in the bones. It actually gets smaller and weaker because there's no gravitational reinforcement. So actually calcium reaches out in the urine and actually can cause kidney stones and other various hazards. It's actually a big chronic problem for um, uh, astronauts and people who spend long periods in microgravity. I didn't get a laugh, but I got a sort of like, mm. <laughs> so, which does count as a reaction. So, yeah, so uh, once at the... Uh, I did try and explain like the, the principles of evolution and the development of the neocortex on a sophisticated uh, level of you know, brain cognitive development and uh, academic controls and uh, administrative oversight by the brain has evolved over uh, some 700 million years. But I tried to explain this to a room full of drunk Bristolians who hadn't then got the process, it seems. They actually had uh, arrived at the limbic system and stuck with that, <laughs> which is actually quite... I actually did try to do a double act at one point, uh, but the point of a double act is that you have to have someone who knows you and likes you and is willing to work with you, which was the trouble in to uh, try and find that. I actually came up with the cheap alternative, which was basically this. Uh, I'm aware this doesn't look like the most impressive thing. Um, it's a sock puppet, as you can tell. I, I, didn't, I didn't have time or money to really do anything decent with it, but you know, you're a scientist, you do the best you can with very limited resources. <laughs> and I thought, thought if I cannot act about it, but I realised that the reason that uh, this sort of thing, first off, I'm not a ventriloquist, so that would have been tricky. 
But uh, the ventriculum actually relies a lot more on the dominance of the visual system in that the actual uh, visual system is almost dominant sense. Like to the brain is tied into like the, the eyesight and the occipital lobe and things like that. So eyesight actually overrides a lot of uh, the senses in that sort of, like, if you hear a sound and you see a source of the sound, the eyes will tell you that the source is here, even though it's not. You see, this is how surround sound works. In the cinema, the speakers are actually behind you, but you can see the screen, and you feel like it's being talked to you in that sense, because basically uh, the eyes override the location. And it's also going to happen with the McGurk effect, uh, with basically something like when you see bad subtitles, that would sink, it's really disconcerting because your eyes and ears are trying to combine to create this new sensation. And it's, you end up with sort of distorted, very weird uh, perception. And also it um, actually affects your, it can be caused of motion sickness, where your eyes are telling you everything's solid and fine, and your ears balance sensors are saying everything's moving around and everything's really sort of sloshing around. So you've got some sort of incompatibility in the brain, where the eyes are saying everything's fine. And the balance system is saying, no, no, we're moving around. So there's actually mixed signals, which the brain doesn't deal very well with in the, sort of, the lower you know, the sort of, um, reptile brain regions. And that's it. So if you've got any sort of incompatible signals from the brain, as far as the more primitive sections are concerned, the only thing that can cause that is some sort of poison. Uh, so it tells you to vomit, which is uh, basically vomit is the turn it off and turn it on again approach of the brain. So something wrong, vomit, I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I'm going to lose. That's the sort of approach it goes for. But also, the top of it works because. It, this, these things are sort of, sort of considered quite charming. Um, with ventriloquist dummies, those things are actually considered quite creepy. The sort of really classic ones with the big smiley faces and the red cheeks. And what that sort of implies is some sort of effect of um, the uncanny valley effect, where things that look quite human but not quite actually far more unsettling than something that's far more basic, but you can sort of impose a face on. Um, it's, sort of, it's believed to be possibly linked to the fact that we have evolved the revulsion to corpses, like, as I well know, in that we actually do. We see corpse, the obstacle some sort of culture too, because evolutionary sense, corpses signify nearby danger because someone's died. Also bacteria and ill health, possible disease being spread. Um, so then I found this all quite fascinating, and then I realised I'd forgotten to write a routine for this bit. Um, so yeah, so um, that's a sock. <laughs> so that didn't work, I got sidetracked by science, as can happen. Hmm. Yeah, so um, it's talking about the, the success of science uh, and trying to find science and comedy. Uh, not, not ideal. Uh, let's be on the back because I'm like, generally stood here in a lab code for no discernible reason. Uh, it does sort of violate the fourth wall a bit. So most of the results I've had, they're not particularly great, so discuss them. It, it would work better if other people were more interested in science, uh, which uh, sort of ends like this, uh, trying to encourage. So small steps, small steps perhaps. So uh, in conclusion, uh, well, it hasn't worked for me, but then again, like I said, I am one data point. So I um, can't make any conclusions based on what I've said. Uh, so as every scientist will tell you, further research is required. <laughs> well, that's it. Thank you. Good night.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Details of our upcoming events can be found at our website, www.oxfordcybar.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Oxford Cybar and on Facebook, British Science Association, Oxfordshire Branch.